ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. We're kicking off during March Madness. Cal's Kentucky Wildcats are in the hunt. So throughout the tournament, I'm going to call up my friend to ask about his wins, losses, and especially what he's telling his players in the locker room. You got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Stuart. I'm the founder of Since 71 and we return after a little bit of a hiatus that I can only put down to childcare commitments, commitments with uh, my coaching work with Moneyfield, running Since 71, balancing a day job, balancing a home life but I'm really pleased to be here now with Aaron Smith, the manager of Southampton Women and Kirsty Witten who is a defender at the club. Hopefully, they'll forgive me if I'm a little bit rusty. Thank you for joining us, Kirsty. Hope life is treating you well. Yeah, good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And just really happy to be able to sit down with you guys. Aaron will probably tell you that we've been trying to arrange this for a little while. So uh, it's really pleasing that we've actually been able to do so. And um, how are you, Aaron? You well? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Yeah, good. Um, Yeah, it has been a long time coming. It's good to get it done. Well, they do say it's uh, better late than ever, but I'm really pleased that we've been able to make it happen. So moving into the episode then, I'd love to hear from you, Kirsty, and if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your introduction to football. Yeah, no problem. So I grew up in a place called Froome in Somerset. Um, football's always kind of been a really big part of my life from a young age. Um, like I'd always be out playing in the park or um, when I first joined a team. Um, I actually moved to Southampton in... 2016 um, for work I previously played for Yeovil Town ladies but it wasn't really feasible for me to to travel there um, when I moved down to Southampton and at this point the club was in WSL2 at the time so the commitment wasn't realistic for me to better balance that with with work Um, and then my kind of second day in Southampton I was introduced to a guy called Fran Alonso and um yeah, and then jo- joined Southampton Women from there. So this is my second stint here. I had three years in between where I was at Saints um, and I kind of spent most of my career playing in midfield. But over the last couple of se- seasons, I've kind of slowly worked my way back and, and now playing as a centre-back. You grew up in an age where the Lionesses and women's football wasn't as mainstream as it's now become. What were the main challenges that you faced when you were young and starting out in the game? Um, yeah, so I grew up in a place called Froome in Somerset, um, probably quite a remote part of the country for football. Um, so yeah, I think on reflection, I did experience quite a lot of challenges growing up. Um, I mean, like the opportunities were so minimal compared to today. Um, you could only actually play in boys football um, at club and at school up until under 11 when I was younger. Um, so especially like in my area at the time, it was 
there was literally just boys football teams. There weren't really that many opportunities for girls. Um, I think I was probably quite fortunate at the kind of my local club, it's called Fringe Collegians. Um, there was a couple of coaches who I think recognised that there was a couple of girls playing in the setup, and I think post under 11s they wanted to try and actually provide a bit of an opportunity for us. So they made like a girls team, and like we roped some of our mates into playing. And I think fair play to those guys that there were barely any teams in the area for us to play against. So I think they did kind of really well at organising games and tournaments, um, which kind of gave us the opportunity to to play. And I think at school, like football wasn't in our PE curriculum until I got to like year nine. Um, and I just remember like begging my PE teacher, he's called Mr. White, to just let me join in with the boys PE at school just so I could play football. Um, so And he'd actually let me play in the boys matches as well. Like he would need to ask like the other school if they were okay with it, which like saying that now sounds quite funny, but I think looking back, like probably a lot of other like females, especially like kind of my age, I think have probably experienced that as well. Um, so yeah, and I think probably a lot of the football that I played when I was younger was like within the grassroots game. Like there wasn't an elite pathway to access until I was probably about 15 or 16 when they introduced like the centre of excellences. Um, so there's like nothing like what was available for young girls now so to see where the games progressed is is pretty amazing so i guess if you were starting out now you'd be on bristol city's radar yeah so local clubs like bristol would be the closest um i think Froome would fall within like the southampton radius only just um so yeah but i mean like like probably somerset is like just a lot of fields and um if you are going to play, you do have to travel. So I think that was probably also kind of a, a challenge for me at the time. And it probably is still quite a challenge for girls in the area as well in terms of having that commitment and having committed parents or, or people that would take you in and travel to, to games and training. Did you have any particular influences within the family that encouraged you to get into the game? Perhaps there was there a sibling that played or a parent? Yeah, well, to be fair, my mum and dad were like obviously really supportive growing up in terms of taking me to training and matches like I have I'm I'm the older sibling so I didn't necessarily have anyone around me that was like really into football like my dad kind of followed it but he didn't play or he wasn't like a hardcore fan of um of a club or anything I think probably in the street that I lived in there was a lot of boys in that lived in that street and I think they obviously needed people to make up the numbers in their team so probably when I was like seven or eight I would go and go out and play with them and it kind of just like evolved from there really. Were there any particular players that you looked up to while you were growing up be that in the men's or the women's game? To be honest I could probably reel off quite a like quite a few people that have probably influenced me um I think probably the obvious one when I was younger I was a massive David Beckham fan um, I had the Adidas Predators with the tongue and the elastic. Yeah, um, and I think they, I think like probably growing up, like there was only really male footballers in the kind of spotlight. Um, I think players like Kelly Smith, Rachel Yankee, Marianne were kind of pioneers of the women's game at that time. Um, and I actually remember my mum and dad found out that the women's FA Cup final was being played at Swindon Town. I think I must have been about 12 or 13 and they took me and my sister to watch it. It was Arsenal against Fulham and I've actually still got the programme from the 
game that I don't manage to get all the players to sign it. And Marianne's signature is on there, which is quite funny. So I think like at that point in time, I never would have dreamed that like 20 years down the line, I've had, I'd had the chance to play under her. But I think like those individuals were definitely role models for me because it kind of showed me that women could succeed in football and it was kind of the norm. Um, and probably like a little bit closer to home. I had a coach when I was younger um, who pro- who was a real role model to me, a lady called Dawn Pryor. Um, she was probably the first woman that I kind of personally knew who actually like played and coached football in my town. Um, and I think, again, she kind of showed me that women and girls did have a place in the game and she was a real champion for girls football in the area. And kind of that really still sits with me today, I think. Obviously, Southampton women have got a real rich history um, within the FA Cup and having players that were playing in the sort of 70s and 80s um, against some real adversity. You touched on the fact that many of these players weren't seen. Does yeah. it really hit home now? You've developed relationships with these players of the 70s and it must seem really strange how they almost were a bit of a, a secret society. Yeah, and I think like, people like that were kind of groundbreaking in what they were doing at the time. And I think it's good that those people now get recognised because I think without them, like we wouldn't be in the position we're in at the moment in terms of being able to play regularly, accessing the facilities that we can access, playing in like like the pyramid and the leagues at the moment, like have grown so much in the last, like even just 10 years. So I think those people that played back then all kind of built the foundations for us to then have the opportunity to play now. Definitely. Uh, with the Lionesses' success in the European Championships last year, I've spoken to quite a lot of players and people around women's football that all state that while the win was great in getting young people playing football, one of the big benefits that they saw was just being taken seriously by, um, could be colleagues, neighbours, friends, they just felt that they were more included in conversations about football in general, be that men's football, women's football. Um, I remember speaking to one of your teammates, EJ May, who stated that since the Lionesses win, she just found that people that she knew took her football more seriously. They were more interested in what she was doing at the weekend on, how Southampton women were getting on. And I wondered if that's the something that you found as well. Yeah, 100%. Like, I'm, I always get asked, like, how do you get on at the weekend or who have you got at the weekend and, like, actively get involved in kind of, like, football conversations. I think, especially when the Euros was taking place, like, there was so much interest around it. And I think especially, like, maybe males that haven't ever seen the female game were then kind of having conversations about how the Lionesses were doing. I think the players have become, like, household names. So I think they've definitely done a lot in terms of pushing the game and kind of put it on people's radar and just kind of raising awareness really and I think people are now starting to take an interest I think it really helps that especially some of the games where they're on TV like I think they're a lot more accessible for people now so I think maybe someone that didn't necessarily know about the women's game before has has now got the opportunity to, to kind of watch it on a weekly basis and I think what I've really found especially this season is like probably a lot of people that I work with or like a lot of people I know that their daughters are actually starting to go to football training as well. So I think like that is also kind of drummed up their interest in the women's game because now they're kind of personally experiencing it themselves. 
And that's all fantastic to hear because it's only going to have a really positive effect on the quality of football within the South Coast and hopefully if it's mirrored nationally. But I just wanted to bring Aaron in now. You've been sitting there really patiently. Prior to taking over at Southampton Women, you were actively involved in the, the men's game for quite a long time. I'm just interested to know what was it that converted you to want to coach full-time within the women's game? Um, I think the, the main thing was that, so our, my first game in charge was actually Southampton Women's Reserves and I went to New Milton and we were, I got given by Fran at the time, which we'll probably talk about later, but I got given um, a couple of first-teamers for that game and I thought, oh, my first game as a manager, I'm going to walk this. I've got a couple of first-teamers. One of them was Kirsty Bell, who we know is an outstanding player. And I just, a couple of weeks before, I'd watched um, someone hit a 30, 40-yard diagonal ball to Kirsty, and she took it down with her right <laughs> foot and then she hit it in the top corner from about 40 yards with her left foot. And I thought... Wow, because I didn't had had no idea that women's football was as technical as what it is now, especially and even back five six years ago when this happened, I thought bloody hell, I did not expect this at women's level. And um, anyway, so I went to this first game and we were one 0 down at half time, and I absolutely ripped into these players like I would because I'd managed in the men's game, I'd played in the men's game, I just took what I believed I knew from that point and brought it into that first game and. Afterwards, Kirsty pulled me aside and sort of said to me, like, you, you can't shout at women like you can at men at half time. And I thought, well, why? And it sort of developed over the last few years is that I look back at that and think, actually, that's taught me such a big lesson that even now, if I went and managed a men's team, I still wouldn't raise my voice like that. I would talk more technical. I would talk about the social sort of side of stuff uh, and the changing room, making sure that if I went in the changing room and we were losing or I was angry, I'd try and keep myself composed and make sure that there's still that information to those players. Um, and that one line from Kirst after that game sort of stuck with me and watching players like her that have played at the top level um, and I always joke and, you know, I'm a number nine, like throughout my career playing and I always joke that I was the best number nine at the club. And like now, like I'm not the best number <laughs> nine at the club, like Shannon Aubrey's here now and she's phenomenal at finishing 1v1s, like she's the nutmeg queen. Um, she hasn't got me yet though, because she knows she'll get dropped, but she hasn't got me yet. Um, but she is brilliant and, you know, it's just phenomenal to see the level of technical ability that is now in the game and the players that are now playing, um, the likes of Ebsfleet, um, who we were talking about earlier, like the likes of them that are now in, well, they tier five, but some of the players have been playing in tier two that are now in tier five. That shows you the, the level of ability that is throughout the women's pyramid now. It is so tough. Um, and I love it. I love the challenge. I like the the... The, like I just said, the technical side of it and the analysis and things like that, which, um, you know, we're tier four, like tier four. I'd never get anywhere near tier four in the men's game. And I love the fact that the National League, and I heard you talking like, you know, people was talking about in the office about how do you get on at the weekend and stuff. And I think a lot of that's down to social media, like the guys like you covering these games. And people now see the women's game, like, you know, I open Twitter and within the first two, three tweets, there's always something about the women's game in there. And it's stuff that I wouldn't have seen two, three years ago. And that's fantastic. 
When you joined Southampton Women, you did so under the guidance of Fran Alonso, who's coached in the Women's Championship with Lewis, who's currently at Celtic, spent a time coaching in the Premier League with Everton. What impact did Fran have on how you coach today? Uh, so when I came in, Fran was obviously at Southampton working, uh, I think, under Pochino at that time. So he was bringing all the stuff he'd learned from Southampton men's first team and bringing it into our training sessions. And I was brought in, I was just met uh, Aaron Wallace actually on a, a training course. And I was thinking, I think it might have been my level two at the time. And he said, oh, they're looking for coaches. So I came in and I was what you would call like the cone boy. I was picking up Franz cones. I was making sure that, you know, and I wasn't just picking up the cones. I made sure that I was reading his session plans. I knew that after the warm-up, there was going to be um, the next part of the session was already set up. So Frank could move from one part to the next. And then the next one was already set up and I'll pick up the first one. Um, so it was smooth for him. So I would try and impress him with what I could do proactively. Um, and I've had this conversation with coaches that have come in and worked with us as well. Like you might just be coming in and working as, you know, the junior coach or the youth coach out of the group. But, you know, learn from others around you and, and try and promote what you've learned and um, try and be proactive with it as well, not just plod through the motions. And that's what I did with Fran. I tried to impress him and so much from him. He was a really good um, people person. He, he um, had a great relationship with board, but he could at that time, there was money around at that time with sponsor, there's a big sponsor. And if there was any money needed, he would be able to get that from that sponsor. Um, so they all had night kit. They had nice stuff. They had, um, obviously the, the, the pitch they were playing at as their home pitch was a good pitch. Um, there was loads of good stuff going on. And I sort of learned mostly from Fran was the, a lot of this, the, the technical side of the sessions, uh, really big in possession, really big in possession. Whereas when Simon took over, Simon was big, like Kirsty would back me up on this. Simon was more out of possession. Um, he was really good. He, he, you know, it was really difficult to score against Simon's teams when I was the reserve manager and the 11 v 11 at training. Um, and Simon was very different. So Simon's more tactical he was a genius tactically um and fran was more that man manager if you like or that people person so picking up bits of both brilliant and um i think fran going to lewis and then taking simon uh was big detriment to Southampton women at the time um because simon was doing such a good job and he was so close to promotion that year and we all know in this league like our club has been renowned for finishing within the top three and not going up year after year after year because there'll be one team like Plymouth or Canesham and, and they'd end up winning the league and going up. And um, Simon was so close that year. Um, and I think that was a bit bad year for the club when they lost Simon as well. But I think from both, they've done really well. Simon did actually really well. Lewis, I don't know if he was treated very fairly there I, in my eyes. Um, but Fran's obviously smashing it up now in Scotland with Celtic. I've got a lot of time for Fran, so uh, I'm really pleased whenever I see him having success at any club that he's involved in. So you've been with the club now sort of four to five years. You've been heavily involved in shaping the club. How have you done that and what has been the most important change that you've implemented within Southampton Women? Oh, um, for me, the level of professionalism especially uh, the culture, the environment. Um, I'm really big on that. 
Um, things like uh, the kit was always in a kit bag in the middle of the changing room. Players would arrive and take their own kit out of the kit bag and look for their numbers and stuff. We make sure all the kits hanging up. We make sure on away days, the culture, the environment is always the same. We always get on a minibus. Um, we look after people. We have full-time psychologists now. Um, player welfare. Um, away from the field, I think the youth over the last couple of years where COVID's sort of affected the league and I'll be honest, where Southampton were in the league and we knew that, you know, we're not going to beat Southampton or a team with the backing like that. So we sort of concentrated away from the football, if you like, made sure like now we have much bigger sponsors than we've ever had before, which obviously impacts going forward. Um, the youth set up, making sure that we were looking after the coaches and the youth set up better. Like when I came in here, we had one person that was treasurer, secretary and chairperson. That's not healthy. And now you look at the committee that we've got, um, it's phenomenal. Some of the stuff we're doing is brilliant. Going forward, um, obviously, our big issue is we don't have a ground. Um, and we're always sort of finding that we bow down to these men's teams. And we things, examples are overcharging us for pitches, um, charging us ridiculous amount of money for a pitch. And we have no choice. Um, training on it, we, we're horror pitch and we're playing on a Sunday in a big game. And then the men would train on it midweek on a Wednesday because they can't find an Astro pitch slot somewhere. And our game would get called off or affected on the Sunday because they trained on the Wednesday. We, and fair enough, it's their pitch, but we, we, you know, it was affecting us. So going forward, like we want to find our own pitch, um, get our own ground become a business, if you like, run it as a business, invest that money from that business within the players, within the staff, um, within that culture at the club and make sure that, you know, we can then thrive. But for me, the biggest thing, and I think this is where a lot of teams have that big downfall, is we need to do it and do it in a sustainable way and make sure that we can continue to rise through the pyramid, um, but do it sustainably. Kirsty, this isn't your first stint at Southampton Women. Are there any obvious things that you've noticed about how the club has changed since you've been away? Um, obviously, there's a lot of new faces. I think probably similar to when Smithy joined. I joined in the Fran Alonso era. Um, I think I met him maybe like the second day of moving down Southampton and he invited me along to play with the team. But I think kind of Smithy and the staff, since they've come in, have done a fantastic job just in terms of implementing like a really clear philosophy on and off the pitch um I love the environment that we've got um and I think we've got really high expectations of each other um this is probably like the most together team that I've ever been part of um I think everyone works really hard for each other everyone's in it for the right reasons and kind of we're all kind of going in the same direction and even like all the stuff that Smithy spoke about off the pitch, like there's so much that goes behind, like on behind the scenes um, that's kind of helped the club progress, whether that's like social media, we do analysis, we've introduced GPS for training and matches um, and even stuff like menstrual cycle tracking, like we do wellness reporting. So like that was never in place before, but I think that's now like a real fundamental part of what we do. And I think it, it just helps create that kind of culture and environment that it's it's just like a really enjoyable place to be, if I'm honest. It sounds like the club really values its players, which is something that's quite refreshing. They're obviously looking quite in-depth 
the welfare of their players, and that's probably something that isn't done in quite a lot of teams in the divisions above, and it, that's really refreshing to hear. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's it's probably like reflective this season, just in terms of we've got players like Shannon Aubrey's joined us, Shannon Sivright, so we've got like top players that are wanting to play for the club, and I think those things have actually played like a massive part of the reason that they've come to play for us. I think we're very people-centred. Um, and I think that's that's an important part of helping football players perform on the pitch, I think. So I was just going to say, from my point of view as a manager, like how do, you, how do we compete against the badges of Portsmouth, Oxford, you know, um, Bournemouth, Saints? We have to offer something that they're necessarily not really offering. Um, and that's where we've been challenged so much over the last couple of years since coming to this club. With When I was at Chichester, we, we could attract good players. Like, we could attract Molly Clark in because, and Tammy Wayne because we were Tier 3. Drop down to Tier 4, you find that players didn't want to play in Tier 4. They'd go to Tier 3 and play for a team that were offering them tenth of what we were offering them um didn't care about the welfare you know coming back from I won't say who but coming back from an ACL injury and playing 90 minutes first game back you know absolutely ridiculous and just because they were playing in tier three but we now now people are starting to wake up to the fact that actually tier four isn't a place to be it's a, is, is a good place to be there's some very good teams down here and we've like I said we've We've had to offer stuff that others haven't. And I think now, like you said, treating people before the player is something that we're really big at at the club and we look after people. Um, and I think that's our biggest strength. And especially for me as a manager, and that's what I want to sort of make sure that people are aware of at the club. There's a lot to be proud of for everyone involved within the club. From the outside looking in, it seems that there's a lot of respect that goes on within the club. Players from the first team respect the players from the reserve team and uh, further down in the age groups. Uh, there's a lot of respect and support between the coaching staff and there's a lot of gratitude and respect that's for the volunteers and supporters, which is uh, brilliant to see. Because while people listen to this and think, well, my club does that. We, we're, we've got a one-club approach. The reality is that there are too many clubs within the English women's football pyramid that don't actually provide that yeah, we, we will train on one venue. So this is all the stuff we've put in place the last couple of years is we all train in one venue. There's the youth train in the same venue as us. So when we get there, I get there an hour early, I walk around the youth training sessions. So I get to talk to the coaches, get to watch their sessions, um, get to learn stuff from them, get to talk to the players. Um, like yesterday, uh, Shan Sivright and Kirsty delivered a session to one of our uh, under-16 teams. So we're just like, we're under-16 team. So that's the stuff that we can do there. And, you know, I've got a big shout out to Redbridge School because they're phenomenal with us. Like we've got a really good partnership with them. They're our training hub at the minute. We've played some of our games, our reserves play there. And talking of reserves, so our reserves are on the same pitch as us at training. So as a first team manager, I'm getting to see the reserves every single week, twice a week to see who's doing well. And, you know, a lot of teams can't say that. Even going up the leagues, we've had players drop down, play for us that, you know, they played for a first team, but they train on a different day to their reserve team and things like that. Like, I just can't see how that works. And that's, like you said, it's, it's a family. And that's the word I use is a family. And that's exactly what it is. You've touched on the reserve team there. They compete in the National League Reserve League. 
how have you found that that environment has impacted the team? There's obviously a lot more to it than most reserve teams that compete in local divisions. The distances travel, for example, and the costs that are incurred with that. We we play and we do everything that we do. We do it as if we're the league above. So that means that if we get any staff, any players that get cherry-picked um, to go and play for a team in the league above, um, they don't feel out of place. And that goes for wording on development plans to GPS um, stats. Everything we do is for the league above. Um, the reserves, we were really challenged putting them in financially. Um, this was a few years ago. We looked at it and financially we just thought it's not going to be worth it. And I have to be honest that the league have done so well this year to be able to allow more teams in that reserve league. Um, they pay um, referee fees, things like that, to save clubs that money that we can reinvest in buying dugouts that we can put out um, at the side of the pitch and things like that. So for us, the challenge of going away to Exeter, going away to Plymouth, like our reserve team are on Sunday, it's just great for them and it gives them a great challenge. Like you can go and play in the Hampshire leagues or the Southern region leagues, but actually playing in a national league, getting the opportunity like Portsmouth um, reserves have done, their development team are in the semi-final of the plate, you know, done really well and the first team have as well. So it shows that actually once you're in and you're integrated within that league, it, it's only going to bring better players along and it's only going to mean that the youth players have something more to succeed to playing in a national reserve league rather than some of the Hampshire leagues or Southern region leagues. Kirsty, you've obviously rejoined the club after a stint with local rival Saints playing under Marianne Spacey Kale. She always comes across so calm, so confident. Is that always the case or behind the scenes was there uh, some, some hairdryer moments? Marianne's kind of character, she's very calm by nature. Um, she obviously does have very high expectations of players and staff, but I think she is quite a calm and composed individual. And I actually think probably that really contributed to kind of the success of the team over the last few seasons. I think there's obviously been a lot of pressure around that group and that squad to achieve. And I think she's just got an ability to kind of keep players composed and focused. And I think throughout kind of my time there and my experience, I think there's always focus on one game at a time, building like the blocks and foundations so that I think when the club was ready on and off the pitch, like for the promotions, like, it was ready and it was set to go. But yeah, I think she is very like calm mannered and um, I think that's probably one of her, her strengths and her good qualities. And is that true during halftime team talks where perhaps the first half hasn't quite gone the way that the team had hoped? Yeah, definitely. I think obviously if maybe games aren't going so well, she's not afraid to to let us know like what, she, what she's thinking or what we maybe needed to do better in the second half. But I think probably if you look at a lot of like the results over the last couple of years, I think there's been a handful of situations where maybe we haven't controlled the game in the first half, but it's a game we need to win and it, it's not a panic at half time. It's a real kind of calm, reflective um, kind of time that she takes to then um, get the team ready to then go and compete in the second half. And I think probably especially last season, a lot of the games were won in the, the second half. So I think, yeah, she definitely um, she definitely kind of stays calm, composed, doesn't panic under those kind of stressful moments. 
As a, a local coach within the women's and girls section in Hampshire, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to gain access and shadow some RTC sessions. And I've been really impressed with everything that I see there. Every single player that enters training, they greet the coach with sort of a fist bump, handshake, high five. And that level of respect is really refreshing to see, um, along with something that really kind of took me by surprise or a pleasant surprise was seeing uh, a group of girls with a quite diverse age range receiving sort of specialist physio training and, and all working together as a, as a group. That is probably something that seems like an absolute no-brainer for most clubs, but it was something that really took me by uh, by surprise. When you're working with kind of girls and females like that, social side is really important. So I think like, I think it's something that probably a lot of clubs throughout the country, both in the elite game and at grassroots football, I think is is key just in terms of keeping players engaged and, and probably like what we spoke about before, like really feeling valued and feeling part of it. So, yeah, I think obviously Southampton do it really well. I think Southampton women, we do it really well. So I think it's, I think that is is key in, in girls sport and in, in girls football, definitely. After the frustration of cancelled seasons due to COVID, you were able to see all promotion to the championship but you did it in the sweetest way possible against local rivals Portsmouth in front of a record crowd at St Mary's. How was that experience for you? Yeah, I think obviously that was like a momentous occasion like for not just like the club, but for us as players. I think it was years of not just work, but patience from everybody um, that kind of contributed to that win. And obviously it's nice that it was against Pompey at St Mary's. I think we maybe joked at the time that it was almost written that that was going to happen. Um but I think that was probably like a that night. It was probably a bit of a like a weird situation because we'd obviously won the league, but we still had that playoff game to prepare for against Wolves. So I think that was then went to the forefront of everybody's mind. So it was kind of like yeah, like wow, we can celebrate that we won the league. But I think the focus was always from that moment, that final whistle. The focus was always then on winning that playoff match against Wolves. So it seems like after the post-match celebrations, it was treated like any other victory and it was quickly a case of refocusing for the playoff final. Yeah, and I think like trade, like I think going into training that week straight away, it was about preparing for the playoff game. Um, I think we've been doing things throughout the whole season anyway, so I think everybody was ready. But I think it was, Marianne described it to us once as um, almost like building blocks. So every game we would add another block to kind of our building and and that was a real key one winning that night against Pompey and kind of clinching that league but I think everybody knew that if we didn't then win that playoff match it kind of was all for nothing really and we'd have to go back to another season of of patience and and work to try and get that promotion. It seems that there was so much attention to detail at the club that I imagine a lot of the playing staff knew exactly what was expected of them which almost makes me question whether yourself or anyone was feeling any particular pressure going into that playoff final. Wolves obviously coming from a very similar position, they've heavily invested. So there's a there was a lot riding on it for both clubs. Yeah, I think obviously there was a, a massive amount of pressure on the match. Um, I think you always knew that whoever wasn't going to win, it was just going to be like such a devastating situation for them, especially going a whole season and you're relying on one game. But I think honestly, I think like we were, we were really prepared for the match. Um, 
I think throughout the season, we'd always been really hard to beat and score against. So I think we went into it knowing that that was a strength of ours. We knew we were going to be secure. We'd obviously done a lot of analysis on Wolves. And I think we, I think we were honestly ready and prepared, not just technically and tactically, but also kind of psychologically. And I think everybody on that day was, whether you're playing, whether you're on the pitch, whether you're a supporting squad member, whether you're a staff member, I think everybody was in a really focused um, mental state to be able to then go and perform and, and win the game. And I actually think maybe like Wolves are a good team um, and there wasn't kind of too much on the day that kind of separated both clubs. But I think probably just that like staying calm, sticking to the game plan and kind of keeping that kind of psychological focus was probably what got over the line for us, I think. Without wanting to put you in a bit of an awkward situation with former teammates and friends, are there any particular players that you'd want our listeners to be keeping an eye out for over the coming seasons? Um, I think, like, obviously, Southampton have got such a rich history as a football club of developing players, whether that's in the boys' game or now in the girls' game. And I think it's like amazing that any young girl in the city can now kind of put on a Saints shirt and kind of dream of walking out at St Mary's or putting on a Lionesses shirt and representing their country. So I think there's a few kind of players in the group at that at the moment that are going through that experience. So like probably just a couple to pick out, like Lucia Kendall, Millie Mott, Meg Collette, who have kind of all come through that programme and are now excelling. And they've all got the ability and kind of the attitude to keep on improving even more. Um, so they're obviously like exciting players to watch for the future. Um, obviously, we've drawn the Saints, like the RTC in the Hampshire Cup. Um and again, they've got some good players coming through. So I think that's going to be a really interesting game against them next month. And I think it'll be a really good kind of experience for both teams, I think. Aaron, it's been a difficult season with injuries within the squad, including losing your influential co-captain, Lucy Mir. How does the club support players to firstly prevent injury and in the unfortunate case of being involved in a long-term injury? Um, yeah, Lucy was a freak injury that it was a, a horrific tackle, really, where she's jumped up for the ball and then the fall was backed into her. So Lucy's ended up landing nearly on her head, actually, um, from sort of shoulder height. And she done her ACL, which is the big, as we all know at the minute, is the big talking point in women's football. And it's an American football, actually. It's just something that we always work really hard on it's something that we we track menstrual cycles we track sleep we track well-being mental health um stress we do all of this and it's links to interventions at training how we talk to players at training away from training and also um extra stretches if they're in certain um phases of their cycle if they are if there's a lack of sleep or they're going to try too hard because they're under a lot of stress at work we look after them like this and I'm really proud of our history of injuries or lack of, if you like, um, since we've been at the club. But Lucy's one was the first real serious knee injury that we've had um, that's required surgery. And then Lauren Cheshire, bless her, you know, she ended up um, breaking her leg against Saints, blocking a ball. And as she blocked the ball, it flipped her foot around and she landed on sitting on her foot and it broke her leg. Um, we got her back. She's been back. She's been performing really well last few weeks. Um, and she got 
well, she's sort of been fouled on Sunday against Canesham and she's landed on her arm and then the the player behind has also landed on top of her and her arm. So she's broken her arm and dislocated her wrist. So we're just waiting to see when her operation's going to be and how long it's going to be before she comes back. But yeah, we, we've we been, like Kirsty said earlier, we now have GPS at the club for the first time ever, which we use. Um, it's all about injury prevention for us, that GPS. We don't use the data as a big stick to start beating people with or um, anything like that. It does bring that element of... Um, competition I think and it's quite nice that when we play 11 v 11 for instance against the reserves on a Thursday at training which we always do for a certain period of time the players that aren't playing are now running around the edge of the pitch whereas we never had that before we had the GPS so again like we don't encourage we do encourage them to do it we don't tell them to do it it's just as soon as they see one or two people do it they all think actually that's a good idea I might go and do that and then obviously that then helps with their injury prevention as well. You touched on tracking cycles and sleep. How do you go about doing that? Is this a specialist sports app that you use or are you getting everyone to get themselves their Apple Watch or their Fitbits all uh, all linked in? Um, how practically uh, is the club doing this? So the, we, I, well, I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that we were doing as much as we could. And um, it was funny because especially with um, menstrual cycle tracking, we couldn't find anyone doing it properly and I had to go all the way up to the Chelsea doctor and I managed to speak to the doctor that works with Emma Hayes and she did a zoom call with us and explained it all to us and broke it all down and this was probably now three four years ago and we find now a lot more teams are doing it which is brilliant um but then the stuff around sleep stress mental health like I said earlier we have Johnny who's our full-time psychologist so if people are struggling they're not going to be able to play football or if they're struggling away from football they just bring their worries to football and then end up blowing up on the pitch shouting at each other and things like that so how we use it is we pay for an app yearly and that app is something that the players can log into before the game, after the game, before training, after training. And they can very quickly, within two minutes, just log all of the data. And then it gets put into a sort of central iCloud, if you like. And at the minute, Lucy Mir, it's her job, um, which is something, again, we do with injured players. We try and make sure that they have a reason or um, they have a job at the club so they don't feel left out. Because um, I know mental health side of being injured myself is it's so hard and you just feel like you're left and no one loves you and you're to the side and we try to make sure that everyone feels part of it um so lucy actually does that she takes the data from that iCloud and she puts it onto a spreadsheet and before a train session the staff get to see that and it might be that we don't do anything it might be that someone flags up as red in that red amber green scoring system and they we don't do anything. We'll just keep an eye on them. Because most of the time, I'd like to think that as a manager, I can look at a player and tell if there's something up from their body language, the way they're playing, the way they're reacting, if something goes wrong in a training session. But things like interactions, there's certain players that don't like being picked out in front of other people. So it might be the case that if I know that they're flagged up as amber or red on that spreadsheet before training, something's going on at home that I don't know about, for instance. And it might be that we just let them train and interact interactions are kept to a minimum. And it was actually London city that had the app a few years ago that we looked at and spoke to about the app. And that's where we got it from. 
So again, we're doing stuff that championship teams are doing um, because like I said earlier, we want to strive to be there as a manager. I want to strive to be working in that championship. And so it's, it's really important that we look after the people before the players and that's how we do it. Moving to matters on the pitch, you are preparing for a National League plate semi-final against Leeds United. It must be really exciting to be facing a team outside of your normal catchment of the southern area and also taking on a team with such a big name as Leeds United. How is the preparation going for the match? Yeah, I'm absolutely buzzing. I think I look at it and think a national competition semi-final, what a huge game. And I hope none of the players listen to this before the game because we're going to tell them it's not a huge game. (laughs) (laughs) But... It's it's brilliant. Like the chance to get there and play um, in a final, a national final, is just brilliant. And the the players are all in good spirits. Um, we're we're training really well. Yesterday we started working on leads, um, and that's no disrespect to Lark Hall, who we have the Sunday before. But I try and work when when I'm sort of managing that coaching element of stuff with the staff. We try and work at least two weeks ahead at least. So we're doing stuff now that we would be putting in place maybe three games time. And that's how we sort of work. But yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because after Leeds, we have Selsey midweek. And after that Selsey game, we have Moneyfields on the Sunday. So we have Leeds United after a five-hour trip home. Selsey on the Wednesday, Money's on the Sunday. That's a really, really tough three games and then you add to that the low you know the local derby of Selzy, the history between the clubs and me and it just yeah it, it becomes um an even tougher week but I'm I'm really excited and I think you know I don't know if Kirsty thinks but the players are excited as well like they keep talking about it it's an overnighter so we get to travel up on the bus and stay overnight on the Saturday night and we all love that go out for a meal together and play some FIFA in a hotel room and Still undefeated at FIFA, so that's good. <laughs> Kirsty, you're no stranger to a big game. How will you manage your own preparation? Will it be an early night to get as much sleep as possible? Will you be up late due to nervous excitement? Will you be more looking around at your teammates to who might be suffering with a bit of nerves and seeing if you can support them in any way? Yeah, I think obviously like everyone's really excited for the game. Um really looking forward to it I think I'm very much like a routine kind of person so like personally my kind of preparation will just be the same as it is for every game um I know other players probably are going to be a little bit nervous I think that's probably where players like myself Shannon or both Shannons uh Tucker that maybe some of the more experienced players I think have got a key role across that weekend to make sure that the girls are calm the nerves are settled like I think it's all right to be a little bit nervous um because I think that that shows that you care um but yeah, and just making sure that they're ready and any support or help they they need um, that we're on hand. But yeah, I do like to get a bit of an early night. But Shannon did tell me a couple of weeks ago that Jordan Henson only got one hour sleep the night before the Champions League final. And I think he had like an incredible game. So I think if if I do end up being awake all night, I'll just be channeling my inner kind of Jordan Henderson on the Sunday afternoon, I think. So, um, but yeah, I, I, personally, I think... I think my kind of key role across that weekend will be um, kind of supporting the the girls just to make sure that they're ready. We've already touched on on how much of a family club Southampton Women is. 
obviously there's a little bit of a logistical challenge with the trip to Leeds. Is there anything that the club are able to put in place to bring more fans to the game? Yeah, we have looked at it, um, but the coach hire has come back at a ridiculous price. And I talked earlier about being sustainable. Um, the Lapstone Pub are, are one of our main sponsors and they screen all our games at the Lapstone. So home or away, we screen our games and you can go and watch it at the Lapstone. So it might be the case that we do that. Um, so players will have to go there. It's in Horton Heath, just outside Fair Oak. Um, and it's... We, we have talked about it. We'd love to take some of our youth players and parents up there. I'd absolutely love that and take them all up on a coach. But it's just so far away. And that's the problem with it being a national competition, isn't it? It's just so far away. Whereas in the final, Stourbridge would be a lot closer. Um, Crawley, imagine if it's us and Crawley in the final, you know, and we've both got to travel up to Birmingham to play the final at Sullahole. So it's... Yeah, it's um, a long way to go and we have looked at it and it's something that over the next two weeks that the club and the committee, I know for sure, are definitely looking at to see if we can take people up with us. I wish, you know, um, yeah. That opportunity to play clubs north of the, I say north of the border, um, is a real blessing, but almost a little bit of a curse as well then, logistically and financially, frustratingly. It, FA Cup, you get money for it. You know, these League Cup, League Plate, we don't get any money for it. Who who pays for the £2,000 coach on the way up there and back? Who pays for the £1,000 hotel for, you know, the, the, the 13, 14 um, rooms? We have to. And, you know, where does that money come from? Because it's extra. Because the club have never, ever got to the semi-finals, quarter-finals of this competition ever before. So we, we don't budget for it. Um so who who pays for that? We don't get any money from the league for it like we would in the FA Cup. So it's just down to us, sponsorships and players, you know, going out, doing raffles and press-ups and sit-ups and things like that. And that's the point. So we can't go wasting money on things that we don't need. It might be that we have to take a minibus up there rather than a coach to save money. It's it's that that's the level, unfortunately. We don't have like the um you know, the budget to say we're gonna fly up there, which I'd love. For a long time, it's been a frustration of mine. Uh, there's a real lack of external investment in the National League as a whole. Um, clubs obviously work hard for sponsorship, but unless you've got access to a men's side who will support you financially and can absorb financial losses through Premier League income, you're always going to be up against it to really push on and move up the women's football pyramid. And Emma Hayes' recent comments about how, as part of the women's game review, that they should be open to everything to grow the game, even considering making the Women's Super League closed. I don't see how that would be a real benefit for the women's game as a whole. It would only benefit those at the top. So for me, I think it moving forward with that sort of idea would be a terrible one. But while I agree with uh, thinking outside the box, it... Yeah, it just it doesn't seem like a beneficial move for women's football at all. I don't know what you think about that, Kirsty. Um, yeah, I'm, to be fair, I'm not I'm not sure what the best thing for the women's game is. I think there's been a lot of discussion about it over the years, but yeah, it's probably one for Karen Carney to try and figure out. I think <laughs> we just we just need more more promotions, more relegations. There's too many teams in leagues sitting there comfortable losing 99 percent of their games. And they don't get relegated because of X number of reasons. Um, 
they need to relegate more teams and they need to promote more teams and make it fresher, I think. Give us a chance to get up or even have playoffs. Like one team out of our league goes up. Why don't second place go for a little playoff with the southeast second place or something like that? Um, we talked about that tier five league with, you know, Millwall, um, Worthing, Fulham, Ebbsfleet. Like that is an absolute horror show of a league to get out of. And then you have... You add Dorkin in that next year, maybe. Um, it's difficult. Our league, like you look at all of the start of the league, start of the season, Moneyfield, Selsey, Cardiff, um, us, uh, Exeter, you know, Swindon doing really well. They could all win this league, um, but only one goes up and then it just goes round and round. And at the minute, I'm the longest serving manager in our league and I've only been here four years because managers just, it just, there's no... There's no drive to get up. Once you lose two, three games, you know you're not going to get promoted. So what have you got left to play for, you know, other than cups? As someone who coaches at youth level, I know how involved that can be and how much time that takes up in your thoughts and the impact it has on your family and work life. Being a National League manager must be levels and levels above that. But ultimately, why do we do it to ourselves? Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think I added up my my hours that I work and it came to 32 hours, 32 hours a week doing this unpaid. But I know where I want to be. I want to be um, driven. I want to be in the championship as a manager, as a member of staff, at least. And that's what I want. And I want to take our club as high as we can and improve it and leave this place in a better place than it was when I took it on. And that's my drive. But I think that's my weakest area as a manager as well. I spoke to a wise man recently and we were talking about finding the balance between family life and football. And we sort of, he, well, he said, it's not a balance, it's a harmony because you'll never get a balance because I'll sit there at an anniversary dinner and I'll be thinking, oh Christ, do I play a 4-3-3? Three, three, do, do I play 3-5-2? You know, and that's what I'm like. And, and that's that's what all managers are like. And you will never find a balance between home life and football, but you will find a harmony. And I'm not very good at that. And I fully admit that. That's something I need to be better at, definitely, for my family life. But, you know, that's something I'll work on um, over the next, next year. But you you know, we were up against teams with big badges, big budgets, big players, and the, the work's got to be put in there. And people ask me and say, oh, but if you go to championship, will you struggle to work with players on contracts? And I say, well, no, because they're on contract. They have to do the work that is on their contract. Whereas at the minute, I'm dealing with volunteers that are school teachers working eight, nine, ten hours a day, coming to training, absolutely shattered working or training till 10 o'clock at night because that's our training slot. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really difficult, but it's something that I want to be better at, definitely. Again, thank you for taking the time to speak to me. It's really appreciated. For anyone that isn't already a follower of your club, where can how can they follow you online? So if you go to um, our social media handle, which is Sotom Women's FC, that's S-O-T-O-N, Women's FC, where you'll see all of our social media updates, um, especially on match days where Hayley's doing an absolutely fantastic job um, raising the profile of our club through social media. Thank you. Go and give them a follow right now. And to all of our listeners, thank you for listening. And to Aaron and Kirsty, take care, look after yourselves, and I'll be rooting for you in the uh, upcoming game against Leeds. Brilliant, thank you. Cheers, Steve, thank you.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. We're kicking off during March Madness. Cal's Kentucky Wildcats are in the hunt. So throughout the tournament, I'm going to call up my friend to ask about his wins, losses, and especially what he's telling his players in the locker room. You got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.